And so as we go to God's word this morning, I do as always want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Sufficient Christ for the Insufficient Christian. Um, My notes are not laid out very well this morning, and so this morning's teaching will probably be a little bit different, and yet I pray that the Lord will indeed encourage us. Um, So as always, as we're in Colossians chapter 2, those of you who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. One of the second century stories tells of the disciple John's encounter with the leading Gnostic in Ephesus around um, AD 90. This Gnostic named Serenthus may have been really one of the earliest Gnostic teachers of the era. And it's As a result, he would have also been one of the earliest troublers for Christianity in the late first century. He was a man that denied that God made the world, that he was part of creation. He also would tell you that at baptism was when Christ the Messiah entered Jesus the man. And then at crucifixion, Christ the Messiah left Jesus the man. Of course, we would deny those because scripture says nothing about it. And yet, we do know that false teaching exists. John himself writes against false teachings in his own letters, warning against immature faith and to be on guard. We see this especially in his second and third epistles. According to that tradition, John was going into the public bath in Ephesus. And with some of his disciples, he perceived that Serenthus was there, this Gnostic man. And so he rushed out of the bathhouse without even bathing. And then he exclaimed, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. He fled those who were heretical. Christianity has many enemies of truth. 
enemies who seek the elimination of sanctification or the eradication of conviction. If I ask any of you today, who are those enemies of truth? No doubt we could begin at the New Testament, and we would point to people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But then we would progress throughout history and identify others, eventually arriving in our modern era. And what we would come to was identifying people or things like politicians or the media. And in this day and age, we have the internet to lead people astray. Some would say things like Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, whatever that is. I'm not on there anymore. Ultimately, we could classify all of those underneath culture wars. Is that really a surprise, though? The culture never claims a belief in God. Few will admit to sin, and so to them, there's no need for Christ. And so it shouldn't be a surprise for us that indeed the culture is leading people astray, or at least attempts to lead people astray. A culture that is more concerned about its own pleasure certainly won't be concerned about God's pleasure. I would tell you, though, that sometimes the truth or the enemy of truth is from within. By our testimonies of contention, we destroy God's testimony of salvation. By our gratification in tradition, we destroy God's declaration of truth. Sometimes we are so concerned about our opinions about Scripture that we're not concerned about Scripture at all. In other instances, sometimes we know so much about Scripture that we we don't know how to apply that Scripture. Puffed up on knowledge, we forget that God's truth really should incite an activity of transformation. And an attitude of, not an attitude of complacency. Such a person is one who is self-righteous. They will condemn everyone else for sin without the conviction of personal sin. These indeed are all enemies of truth. But the enemies that I'm talking about, the enemies that scripture warns about, are false teachers. And we could say, well, wait a minute. We just talked about false teachers. We talked about the culture and how it's leading people astray. And the internet, how it's having an impact. And the media wars that are all propagating falsehood, teaching contrary to God's word. And indeed we did. But that's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about false teachers from within. Absolutely, scripture teaches that we must be on guard and wary of the world. Paul writes at one point that these days are evil. And Christ warns that Satan is prowling around to deceive. But more frequently is the warning of false teachings that come from within the church. The disciple John, as I already talked about, writes of this in his own epistles. And then we have this example that I just gave you from his time at the public bathhouse in Ephesus not just in his letters, but in his interactions and acts, we can point to the Apostle Paul as also issuing warnings, warning that wolves coming from inside, not just from outside, may deceive. The letter to the Colossians is a direct example of this. As the committed disciples in Colossae are content with false teaching that is coming from within, they have to contend for that false teaching. 
that is coming from within. And as a result, they, they're looking at these people who are infiltrating their church and must defend. As Paul continues to contend for faith of Christ, in Christ with the Colossians, we get this grand picture of man's inadequacy, his insufficiency, and the insufficiency of man-made religion when it is placed before us. And instead, what we see is the sufficiency of Christ in the text today. Paul moves from a philosophy of man to the person of Christ in his teaching here. He presents for us a philosophy of man that is empty and hollow and deceitful, our text says, before taking readers then to the person of Christ in the next verses. And there we see, in contrast to the empty, hollow, and deceitful false teaching, that Christ is the fullness of God. He is the embodiment of truth. Everything that philosophy is not, Christ is is. And so I want you to note first this morning the reprimand in verse 8. With this weight of authority that Paul has, Paul warns the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul warns the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from amongst your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. To the Philippians, he writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Consistent warnings like this spread throughout scripture call attention then to the need to be on guard. They act as reminders that deceit and distortion are both prevalent in their existence and persistent in their endurance. Whether intentional or unintentional, something or someone stands ready, always ready, to ensnare a believer and call him or her away from Christ. Paul calls the falsehood enticing the Colossians a philosophy in our text. The term philosophy, while the form used here is a broad term during the era of Paul, This is not the Greek philosophy of like Aristotle and Plato that we often think of today. Instead, philosophy during his era meant an elaborate system of thought and even referred to a um, moral discipline. Anything that was an elaborate system of thought, anything that was a moral discipline, was considered to be a philosophy. In his writings, the historian Josephus referred to the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees as each having their own philosophy. This was an era in which to be considered not just acceptable, but to be trendy, every religion wanted to be found or labeled a philosophy. And so that's what we find here in Colossians. 
that these false teachers are instituting these new truths so that they may be labeled a philosophy in order to appeal to the culture. Frequently, they did so by appealing to special knowledge, a knowledge that was obtained only through a secret revelation, a revelation that wasn't available to anyone else. It's important to note that Paul's not decrying philosophy. He's not saying philosophy is a horrible thing. He's not not calling the Colossians to turn away from rigorous thinking. He's not telling them to turn away from moral discipline. Instead, he's decrying this philosophy. It's well said that philosophy provides a lot of problems to the world's solutions. Paul's not decrying that in general. The issue with the philosophy here being presented to the Colossians was that its character and its content were both contrary to Christ. Homer Kent writes, Philosophy's value is in direct proportion to its adherence to the truth. In other words, a philosophy is only as valuable as the way its conformity to the truth of God. If it does not teach truth, it cannot be truthful. This philosophy has two issues. First, it was formed according to the tradition of men, not the teachings of God. <coughs> tradition itself, like philosophy, is not necessarily unacceptable in itself. Most churches are like ours, as an example, and they celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. And if they're really biblical like ours, they will do it on the first Sunday of every month. (laughs) Nowhere in scripture are there guidelines saying that we celebrate communion in this way, that we celebrate communion on a particular Sunday every month. That's a tradition of men. Is that wrong? No. The passage of 1 Corinthians, it exhorts believers to celebrate the Lord's Supper frequently. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that it is done so regularly. As long as the Lord's table brings our focus to the things of the Lord, rather than the traditions of men, this is a good thing. The issue with most traditions is they're not defined by God, but derived from men. The Jews were governed by something called the Talmud. Basically, it was a collection of extensive writings about the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. And that's what they used, the Pharisees used, in order to regulate the Jews. What originally began as the Ten Commandments from God eventually would span several thousand regulations. Essentially, the Jews took God's law, and what they did is elaborated on it and created more To them, knowledge of the Talmud was more important than knowledge of the scriptures. The absurdity of elevating man's rituals over God's regulations is represented in Mark chapter 7. I want you to turn with me there. Mark chapter 7.
Mark chapter 7, and I want to read beginning in verse 1, but I want to read 13 verses to you, the first 13. So Mark 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his, Christ's disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written? The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. Christ's greatest crime, or his disciples' greatest crime here, is simply violating the traditions of men. It's interesting throughout the Gospels that much of the accusations against Christ weren't that he violated the statutes of God, but that he violated man's traditions. Of course, we know that he didn't violate God's statutes. He was God. Of greater concern for the Pharisees here is not about maintaining God's commands. It's maintaining their own control. Notice what Christ says. That by their traditions, they have voided God's law. In fact, we could say that by maintaining their own traditions, they have prevented others from honoring God. 2,000 years later, we haven't conquered this. The greatest issue for most people today is not the violation of God's law, but the violation of man's tradition. If you go into any church today and propose something different, the most frequent feedback you will get, you will receive, is about the habits and heritage about the customs and the culture. When you ask someone, why can't we do this? The most response, frequent response will be, because we've always done it this way. I'll give you an example. I hate bulletins. They require effort. They require time. They even have a cost associated with them. And primarily so people can use them for an hour That's why I preach longer. You get more value out of it. If it goes for two hours, I've just doubled the value of the bulletin. (laughs) 
No, to be truthful, I, I dislike bulletins. But if you go into almost any church and propose getting rid of the bulletin, you'll incite a riot. <laughs> Ask why and what will they say? Because we've always had a bulletin. Now, to be clear so that nobody gets too upset, I'm not proposing we abolish the bulletin. <laughs> I'm just using this as an example. How many of you, though, would have a sharp reaction if I did propose that? And for what? Would your basis be on God's law or your own tradition? You will be challenged on this in about two hours. <laughs> not on the bulletin, but on tradition. It's not uncommon today to find that most people are more concerned about tradition than they are truth. In fact, people will fight more passionately about their tradition and the ways of man than they ever will for the ways of God. There's a cult, and yes, it is a cult, that worships Prince Philip. The same Prince Philip who just died that was the husband of the Queen of England. The same one that we often talk about. So in this, this island of Tana in Vanuatu, this tribe regularly, regularly prays to Prince Philip, at least before his death. And they await his return to establish a new world order. And they say that upon his return, the fish will leap from the sea and life will become eternal. There are several hundred people in this small primitive island who worship Prince Philip. And they say it this way, here in Tana, we believe that Prince Philip is the son of our God, our ancestral God who lives up in the mountain. This cult gained popularity in 1974 when Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth visited the island aboard their royal yacht. And then as people saw them, they began to worship them. There were a couple of men who were flown from this tribe all the way to England and personally introduced to the prince. One of the men says, meeting him was just wonderful. It's just like being in a spiritual world. Though the prince has died, at the time of looking at this, he was old, in his 90s. And the movement that worshipped him hadn't changed their beliefs. And they said if he dies, they will continue, or he can still return in spirit, and that he can grant them eternal life. It seems incredible that anyone could believe something like this. That somebody would embrace this as truth. And yet there are many who are following this admittedly ludicrous and baseless claim. And maybe we could think, well, they're just simply gullible. Maybe we could say they've never had exposure to the gospel, so they don't know. They have had exposure to the gospel. They've had missionaries there preaching to them. We know some of the missionaries preaching to them. They've had them there for decades. But what they would rather do is believe this fabricated fantasy rather than submit themselves to the authority of the gospel. They will believe everything and nothing, one man says, with one exception. 
They will not believe the truth which they suppress in the hardness of their hearts. Why do I share that with you? Because there's a reason that this cult has taken off. There's a reason that this cult has continued to grow. It was developed as backlash against Christianity. And the tribal elders, what they wanted to do was fight to maintain control of their traditions. And so in order to control their traditions, they developed this whole false religion to go that direction. It becomes about antiquity, not theology. Seems like that would be a miserable life, to always be concerned about tradition. Because if we're so concerned about preserving our tradition, ultimately, somebody's going to step on our tradition. They're going to step on our ways. Because somebody's going to have different values than any of us have. When man's will will supplant God's will, we have a problem. And that's the issue with this philosophy that Paul is condemning here. It was born out of the traditions of men. But that's not the only thing. The philosophy presented by the false teachers in Colossae, they, it has another issue. Not only is it according to human tradition, but then it says it's according to the elementary spirits of the world. I would say it this way. Not only is it man-made, it's man-orchestrated. The word elementary there, elementary spirits, refers to putting things in order or in a row. It's used to signify things like the alphabet, where you put A before B and B before C. You're ordering that. Or numbers, one, two, three, four. What comes to mind when we think of the alphabet and counting? The things we learned in elementary school, hence the term elementary. It's basic. The philosophy being preached here is, in nature, basic. It's elementary. The concept is conveyed by Paul to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4. Turn with me there. We read that text this morning as part of our call, to, or not our call to worship, according to our scripture reading. But I want to reread for you Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also have, also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As Paul frequently does, he is discussing the condition of a person before Christ and after Christ. 
And to describe it more profoundly here, he compares a child and a slave. And in verse 3, he says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Children must be taught the ability to reason and to discern. Until that time, they remain under the care and supervision of someone else. I don't know if slaves is an appropriate term for that, but they are latched on to somebody and cannot depart from that person until they learn more themselves. By being naive, they are enslaved to the elementary basic principles of the world. But then Paul offers hope here. And he's assuring them that they, they don't need to be slaves to those elementary principles. Because in verse 4, he starts offering the gospel. He says that God sent his own son for freedom from that slavery. There's no reason to be enslaved to the elemental philosophy because Christ in his fullness offers something more. We'll see that in verse 9 in our text in Colossians. Read with me the next verses of chapter 4 of Galatians. We read 1 through 7. I want to read 8 through 11 quickly. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul expresses his fear that he's labored in vain. And why does he fear this? Verse 9 tells us, But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, now that you've come to be known by God, how can you turn your back on weak and worthless elementary principles? Paul fears that they will return to those former ways. This is a dangerous place for any Christian. When one is entrenched and taken in by nothing more than elementary principles, they're unable to recognize the false teaching. In fact, that seems to be the case here for the Colossians. How can it be that they were taken in by something so elementary? Well... If you look at a text that we already preached on, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us how. Sorry, it's verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We covered that verse two Sundays ago. And there Paul writes, he says he writes, so that they will not be deluded with plausible arguments. Literally, that the Colossians would not be deceived by persuasive speech. It's easy to look on this text and think, well, that's not me. Or I won't be so obviously deluded by something that that clearly is fake and not real or, or contrary to truth. First, I would tell you, that great overconfidence always leads to a great fall. But think about this. Paul writes to well-founded disciples. If they can be deceived, any one of us could be deceived. And so that there's no misunderstanding about the seriousness of this warning, of this reprimand, Paul says something very specific in our text. 
in verse 8. He begins it by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. The word captive is an unusual word. It's portraying a slave raider who carries off his victim. Not just in body, but literally body and soul. In another sense, the same word refers to the Romans. Who upon conquering a town, what do they do? They pillage it. They capture anything of value, the physical objects. And then they take hold of any person. And then they will return home and what happens? They proclaim their victory by parading all of their spoils through the city. They put everything on display, all the gold and the precious gems, everything of value. But they also lead the people through. In his commentary on Colossians, Robert Robert Gromacki compares the false teachers to slave traders. Because like the Romans who have kidnapped the people and make them their slaves, this is what the false teaching is doing. It's kidnapping the people and making them slaves to it. Moises Silva, Silva describes it this way. They are drawing someone away from the truth of Christ into the slaves of error. Indeed, this text is more serious than a quick reading would reveal. We see that man is insufficient. His traditions are unreliable. His testimony is unsteady. His truth is uncertain. Instead, he must turn to Christ's sufficiency. Because in man's insufficiency, only Christ is sufficient. But that's something we'll probably get into next time. Let us be cautious that we do not hold to the condemnation of tradition, but to the conviction of truth. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, we live in evil days. And yet, Lord, that doesn't change who you are. Despite the evil out here, it does not deny your goodness. Despite the male intentions of of people out here, Lord, we know that indeed your intentions are for people's good and your own glory, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that our confidence would be in that. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be on guard for this false teaching, Lord. Father, may we be prepared to fight for your truth more so than we would for our traditions. Father, convict our hearts and draw us closer to this. And and Lord, may we just trust in the sufficiency of your Son, recognizing that indeed we are insufficient. We give you great praise for today, thankful for who you are. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.